right, welcome to the third hour of the Young Turks. We've got guests for you guys, and then in the last half an hour, we're gonna do our members only post game. In that, we're gonna do one of the stories we did not get to in the second hour with Ida Rodriguez and Brooke Thomas. New York has passed a new law saying that you cannot discriminate based on hair, hairstyle. It's really interesting. Uh, and and uh, it has a lot to do with African American women, for example. And so, great conversation. That's for the members. Tyt.com/slash/join and become a member, or tyt.com/slash/trial uh, to just try it for a week for free. And uh, the second guest I have for you guys in this half hour is an expert on the issue of North Korea, and we'll have a conversation about whether the substance of what Trump is doing with the North Koreans is right or not. And that's really interesting. This is one of the most difficult problems there are. To solve in the world. Okay, so, uh, but now uh, so let's stay on foreign policy and let's talk about Yemen a little bit. Joining me now is Hassan Al Taib. He is the co-director of the Just Foreign Policy, uh, and and I want to talk to him about Yemen and the War Powers Resolution. So, Hassan, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, welcome. Thanks so much. So, um, we had uh, something amazing happen last week. The House said that the president actually has to check with Congress before going to war. Now that shouldn't be amazing because that's part of the Constitution. But they had to make that clear to him and that hasn't happened for a long time. Now the senator had also passed this, but unfortunately that was in the last session. So they'd have to repass it. First, before we do anything else, do you think the Senate will pass it this time around now that it is more meaningful and would actually go to the president? I think they will. Um, I think it's going to be obviously a little bit harder. The Democrats lost a few seats. Um, the but it was a bipartisan resolution. We had senators like Todd Young, uh, Mike Lee all vote for it. <clears throat> so I have uh, I expect that we will pass it. But we can't sit on our laurels and rest on our laurels. We have to you know have a grassroots push, and that's kind of what we're working on right now. Okay, great. And we'll get to that grassroots push in a second as well. So, for people who don't understand the severity here of Yemen, first let's talk about the the massive crisis, and most refer to it as the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. And and that's with Myanmar happening, with the Uyghur people being imprisoned in concentration camps in China, with North Korea still on the map and doing what they're doing. That's a hell of a title to win. So. To give us a little bit of detail on how bad it is in Yemen right now. Yeah, with US military support, the Saudi coalition has cut off the flow of food, fuel, medicine, and clean water that created sort of a de facto blockade. They've attacked agricultural and economic infrastructure, they blew up the sewage systems. And so there's a lot of chaos happening right now. And as a result, uh, the UN calls this the worst man-made humanitarian crisis on the planet. There's about 12 million people on the brink of famine, 1.2 million cases of cholera, and uh, 10,000 new cases each week. So uh, clearly, Yemen is suffering so uh, greatly right now. So, in uh, at the end of last week, there was a report that came out that said, um, in war zones like this all across the world, uh, five times as many children die. As actual fighters on either side, and yeah. and the reason for that is is that what I'm calling the slow motion massacres, which is the famine and, and the disease, and it hits the kids 
under the age of five the hardest. And uh, and so when there's a, a chemical weapon used in Syria and some kids die, people are justifiably outraged. And and yet there's some reports up to what it's uh, 85,000 children uh, under the age of five um, might have already died in Yemen. And, and that's a conservative estimate. Yeah, and and so here we finally have a little bit of action, but is is the media part of the problem here, Hassan? Because with, with the chemical attack, the, those pictures of the kids just are shown nonstop. Uh, there, there's a push for military action, which is always favored by the American media. Here, we're trying to withdraw from military action. That's creating the blockade and the which is creating the famine and the disease to begin with. Uh, are we not getting enough coverage in that regard? Well, I certainly think the lack of coverage is a huge issue. And it's also, I saw a 60 Minutes episode that talked all about what was happening in Yemen, except for the fact that the US military was supporting the Saudi coalition. So they leave out this huge piece of information. So I think there's not enough reporting, and I think some of the reporting out there is biased, but there are people doing great work on this. Um, and you, you, uh, you at the Young Turks are doing some great reporting on it. You've been a real ally in this fight. Thank you, we appreciate that. Let's talk about the Republicans for a second. The ones that are joining the resolution to withdraw our aid of Saudi Arabia in their war against Yemen, why? Why are they doing so? Because usually the Republican Party votes pro-war. And obviously the majority of them still are, but why is this contingent peeling off and voting to withdraw? Yeah, I think the, I, I like to say this coalition goes from the Koch brothers to Code Pink. It's been a huge bipartisan effort. And on the right, a, a lot of folks that are libertarians, the Freedom Caucus, they tend to believe more, you know, really for constitutional war authority. They believe in Article One powers, separation of powers, and obviously under Article One, Section 8. Congress has the ability to declare war, not the executive branch. So that's a, you know, we're appealing to, to those instincts in that side of uh, the political spectrum in America. And no wonder we're winning, the Koch brothers are on our side. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of a crazy coalition, but I, I think, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. If we can agree on this one specific thing and work together on based on shared values, I think that's a net positive. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would take away the Koch brothers' ability to uh, finance elections in a heartbeat. Uh, and I would make that fair across the board for uh, conservative and progressive donors. But uh, if they're gonna help on issues like this or criminal justice reform, I'll take it. Uh, yeah. and, and that's actually old school democracy, where uh, different people with actual ideologies that are not connected to their financial interests uh, get yeah. together and vote on an issue, that's great. Uh, the Koch brothers encourage their politicians to vote on a lot of issues that do affect their financial interests. That's a separate exactly. matter, right? Um, and you'll be shocked to find out that they encourage them to vote in favor of the Koch brothers' financial interests and never against. Uh, <laughs> but we'll yeah, we'll take it in this case. So last time the Senate uh, p passed a similar uh, piece of legislation uh, saying, Hey, the War Powers Resolution says you got to check with Congress, etc. Similar to what the House did. 
it, there was a little bit of a breakthrough in the peace talks in Yemen. Do you think those things are connected? I absolutely do, and I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a recent development in the last 24 hours I wanted to share with your guests. I'll go uh, talk a little bit about what happened in December. Uh, December 13th was the first time the United States Senate ever voted for the War Powers Resolution, and um, so they passed the Yemen War Powers. And on that same day, UN Special Envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths, was able to you know, create leverage because of that Yemen War Powers Resolution on the same day, able to get the two sides to agree to a ceasefire in the province of Hodeidah, which is contains the Hodeidah port, which is the largest port in Yemen. It's where most of the uh, supplies for about 18 million Yemenis get through. So that was huge. And also, you know, the promise to reconvene talks at the end of January. Well, where at the, you know, the end of January passed, it was a fragile ceasefire. But, you know, over the weekend, <clears throat> you know, I, the House voted on their war powers resolution in on Wednesday. And over this weekend, they agreed to basically have all the troops that were in Hodeida um, exit that entire province. We don't have a date for demilitarization, but it's one of the most significant um, significant breakthroughs in the peace talks yet. And I think it's no co coincidence that it happened only a few days after the House passage. Yeah, um, I think the Senate passage in that case. Uh, but so the Senate on the on December thirteenth. The Senate passed their resolution, and that was the first. That was like phase one of the talks, and they agreed to the the ceasefire and data. But there's been, you know, all the troops are still there. But over the weekend, they agreed to basically remove all the troops from the province of Hodeidah. Oh, We're see. still working out when that's going to happen, though. And that was right after the House passage. Yeah, and I just want to make one uh, uh, final note on that, guys. We don't get to peace by just putting pressure on our, on our enemies. Oftentimes, <laughs> we get to peace by also putting pressure on our allies to yeah. get to peace. And so uh, that's what, in essence, this does. It makes the Saudis more likely to come to the negotiating table. So uh, last thing for you, Hassan, is how can uh, our audience help put pressure uh, to do the right thing in this case? Yeah, right now, we are all engines go on the Senate. Um, so call your senators. We have a, a number that FCNL created that we've been updating with all the information you need, and it'll direct you right to your senators' offices. Um, so that's one eight three three stop war. Again, I'll just say again one eight three three stop war. Uh, you can contact us at justforeignpolicy.org and get plugged in that way. Receive our uh, media alerts and e alerts and and such. So. Yeah, stay plugged in, keep the pressure on your senators, and especially if you know folks in uh, Republican red, uh, red states, that's, that's a primary target. We wanna make sure that all the folks that voted with us on SJ Res 54 and in December, that they vote, against, uh, they vote again with us this time. All right, sounds great. Hassan Al-Taib, co-director of Just Foreign Policy. They don't do cooking shows, they don't do sports, just foreign policy. Okay. <laughs> All right, thank you, Hassan, we appreciate it. Take care. All right, get involved, everybody. Uh, when we come back, an expert on North Korea. Let's see if we can solve North Korea together. Wish us luck. All right, uh, back on the Young Turks. Uh, now joining me, Glenn Ford. He is author of Talking to North Korea, Ending the Nuclear Standoff. 
and he was part of Labor Party's International Committee on this issue from the UK. Glenn, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. All right, um, so this is an extraordinarily difficult question. Uh, as long as we've been doing this show, and that's 17 years now, we have not been able to solve this one. I don't mean just the US foreign policy. Uh, we love to be constructive on the Young Turks and offer solutions. Uh, this one has been intractable. So um, I, I liked Donald Trump going to do uh, the talks with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I know that a lot of people in the mainstream media huffed and puffed about that, and Democrats did. But I thought that was a positive step forward. Unfortunately, I think he got pretty much nothing out of it. Uh, but I'm willing to be corrected on that. Uh, and, uh, and so I wanna just level set here on where we are with the North Koreans and then talk about how to solve it in reality. Okay, I mean, Donald Trump has done the right thing. If at first you don't succeed, try diplomacy, uh, and that's what he's doing. Now, frankly, yes, nothing much happened after Singapore, but that, that works for both sides. I mean, there were a series of promises made, nothing's been delivered. Part of the problem is that both administrations, both in Pyongyang and Washington, uh, the leaders are ahead of, ahead of the rest of the game. And one of the reasons for the second summit is to kickstart this process again. The North Koreans have kept their promises. They said no more uh, ICBM or even missile tests and no new nuclear tests. That's happened. So they're where they are. They're waiting to get their side of the bargain, which is uh, end of war declaration, uh, normalization of relations, or at least liaison offices in exchange in Pyongyang and Washington. Uh, they did give up the uh, the 55 MIA uh, sets of remains that, that they're asked to do. But yes, nothing's happened since Singapore. This is restarting the process. So uh, I'm gonna ask a funny question here. Uh, to what degree can we uh, trust American intelligence uh, on this issue? Because from time to time, there are reports that American intelligence sees that they're still working on some missile sites uh, that they're not supposed to uh, be Absolutely, on. but did, when, when did they say they were gonna stop? They said they'd stop testing, they have. Uh, in, in Kim Jong-un's New Year's address last year, he said he would carry on in mass production of nuclear weapons. The Americans haven't stopped, if you want, developing uh, you know, THAAD. Uh, they haven't stopped anything else, so it's where the deal was. You get what you what's on the box with North Korea, nothing else. What was on the box is end of testing, that's what you've got. If you wanna move to the next stage, you, you need to pay more. So obviously, uh, the main problem there was one of perception when Donald Trump declared the problem over. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Donald Trump's got a, a certain way with words. But I mean, if you actually look at what was agreed, the North Koreans has kept to it. It's not enough. We need to we need to move on. But that requires well, it now requires a second summit, and hopefully this time round, the key issue will be a little bit about what we get immediately. But more importantly, is what the process is going to be because there was no process last time. So we probably need a set of working groups dealing with issues around denuclearization, uh, e e uh, economics. Um, you know, normalization of relations and further moves on MIAs. Okay, so Glenn, you say that it's not a healthy way of looking at this thing or accurate to say, well, you know, the North Koreans are crazy, Kim Jong-un is crazy, and we can't reason with them. Um, now, they're the only ones that give you pause. Generally, I totally agree with that line of thinking. 
uh, when they do come out with their over the top propaganda about how they bowl 300s and have no anus and etc you you do wonder a little bit but but i get that they're trying to do mythology in their own way and i'm sure that they're homo sapiens and they have act based on uh, logic or what they in their context view to be logic well, i mean so in their own terms they're acting perfectly rationally I mean, Kim Jong-un adopted in 2013 the Bungjin line, which was developing a nuclear deterrent and growing the economy. The problem is there's a paradox at the heart of that, because developing the, or the, the nuclear deterrent meant the sanctions came on, which made it impossible to seriously develop the economy. He got to a point where he says he has the nuclear deterrent. We can talk about exactly where he is if you want. But more importantly, uh, he's now stopped that development and wants to switch to the economy. Now, that means he needs, he's looking for security guarantees. He's looking for some economic assistance uh, and the rest. Uh, I think he's prepared to deal. All the evidence is he's not his father or his grandfather. He's a man brought up in Switzerland who, who is prepared to deal to grow his economy. So that leads to a set of other issues. One is, I do, I am curious. Do you think they have nuclear capabilities? What do you well, they said, yeah, they have a nuclear. They tested nuclear weapons. They, they they have nuclear weapons, which now seem to be working. Some of the early tests didn't work. They've got an ICBM or ICBMs capable of crashing onto the United States. What is not clear whether they have the capability to marry the two together and to get it to work. Uh, there's no evidence they've got re-entry technology, uh, and they don't have any guidance uh, system. I mean, I was told in Washington that they've probably got a 50% chance of hitting within sort of 50 miles of, of, of what they fire at. So uh, if, if things start panicking in Baltimore, because they're, if they're aiming at Washington. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I'm... I'd still be relatively shocked, and I'm not an expert on it, but having read everything that's in the news about it, be relatively shocked if they could reach the US with a nuclear device. Uh, on the other well, hand- I'm not sure yet, they've got, they, could, they can certainly crash an ICBM. Whether they can carry a nuclear device and whether it would work is a big question. They, they stop right in the gray area, because I think if they clearly developed, they demonstrated they have the capability, if they tested a nuclear weapon and fired it deep into the South Pacific or somewhere like that, then you know, we'd be off to the races. We would have, Donald Trump's war would have started 12 months ago. Right, so but we certainly know that they could reach Seoul, South Korea, where they could kill millions of people. Yeah, absolutely, but they don't even need nuclear devices for that. They've got seventeen to 18,000 artillery pieces on the border. Uh, Seoul is 45 kilometers from the border. They've certainly got the capability to kill you know, hundreds of thousands in Seoul without using nuclear. They have the capability with their you know, intermediate range missiles, which they've had for a decade or more to hit Japan. Uh, and obviously firing at uh, US, US troops and US bases, both in South Korea and Japan. You talk about uh, their scorpion policy, what is that? Well, I mean, the problem is that this is not mutually assured destruction. They have a small number of, if you want, nu uh, nuclear weapons. They're incapable of winning a war. But so if you want, their nuclear posture is yeah, sort of preemptive deterrence. Uh, at the point at which they think that uh, a nuclear war is going to start, that they they will be the first people. 
that they will launch it. And we had reported in Bob Woodward's fear. Uh, it was that Ri So Young, who's the person I generally meet with in, in North Korea, said if you evacuated U.S. Uh, dependents from South Korea, that would be a signal to North Korea that you're about to start a war. And, and, and that's so, when it would have gone off. So that might lead to what you call preemptive retaliation. Mm, yes. And so, uh, okay, that leads us to the two different problems with North Korea. One is preventing a, a war that could get literally millions of people killed, innocent civilians, and very, very quickly. And they're on hair trigger because they believe that they will be wiped out. So they, they will be. I mean, let's not be let's be clear about it. Uh, it yeah. What do you think the American response will be, and what do you think it should be? They're, oh, yeah. they're, they're dead. Yeah, they'll be annihilated, no question about that. But they'll take a lot of people with them. And so yeah. uh, that's the issue. The other issue is this. And uh, also, they're taking a lot of innocent civilians with them, let's be clear. I mean, the, the, the whole people of North Korea, I mean, many of those are just as innocent as, uh, if you want, some of those who died in, in, in Iraq, Libya, and Syria. 100% right. I mean, if they, if they attack. Any of our allies with nukes, let alone us, and we nuked them back. Who did we get? We we got a bunch of innocent civilians. How did that help us? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, that, that, that's always true. And one of the reasons I'm involved in this is that, uh, you know, in, in a sense, the Iraq War. I I, I supported the uh, intervention in Afghanistan because they were clearly connected with the people who were involved in 9/11. In Iraq, it was much less clear. Well, uh, it was actually perfectly clear they were not. Um, yes. So, yes. all right, but I was being polite. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, so, but the problem is that we we don't want to go to war. But in order to not go to war, you have to assure uh, the leaders of North Korea that we are not going to do anything about their government. Uh, and the problem is they run concentration camps uh, and they're a dictatorial government, and it's a disaster. So does that mean we are, in essence, giving up on the people of North Korea in order to save the rest of us? I well, I mean, you've got to do do this step by step. If you can start growing the North Korean economy, uh, I mean, North Korea's view is that uh, if if the Americans get off their backs, then they can start growing the economy like you know, the Asian tigers. And there's some evidence that, that might be the case. Uh, in 2016, before the last round of sanctions came on, they grew their economy by 5%. So there's some evidence this could be a thriving economy. Uh, one of the reasons that Kim Jong-un is, is gone for a nuclear deterrent, well, two reasons. One of which is he's lost the arms race. Uh, he's outspent by South Korea, Japan, and the United States by a factor of 50. Uh, so every time there's a clash, conventional clash, they actually lose. But secondly, uh, this is not this is not a, a a developing country. This is a failed industrial state. There is no pool of uh, peasant labour to to pull into the factories to uh, if you want to deliver that economic growth. So he needs to get some of it from a very bloated military that comprise uh, you know probably two or three million people, almost exclusively men. That manpower they want to move out of the military into the factories. Yeah, you know, funny enough, you have actually given me a little bit of hope here in a situation I have not had hope in in a long time. I can see that. I can see that as a model. We we grow North Korea into a situation where there are a lot more people in power, not just the 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 basically the dictator in charge, and then 
then sanctions would be a bigger lever that we could use with them and we could ease them into the rest of the global economy. It's a long plan, it's a hard plan and it does condemn the North Korean people to probably a couple more decades of suffering. But better than the catastrophic war that the neoconservatives would start. Yeah, I mean, they're looking, I mean, the model they're looking for is not American style capitalism. It's it's the capitalism of one party states, whether it's the old, uh, the Chebol in South Korea, the Zaibatsu in Japan, the state controlled enterprises in Vietnam. Uh, interestingly, that's where the, the summit is, or China. Uh, so they're looking for that kind of model. But if one looks at the progress that's been made in China, things are immensely better than they were 20, 25 years ago. And that's the kind of model we can see developing in North Korea. Uh, if you start nuking North Korea, it's the people in the camps that die as well as everybody else. Yeah, indeed. All right, Glenn Ford, the book is Talking to North Korea, Ending the Nuclear Standoff. Thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, okay, the last half an hour of the show is for just members, tyt.com slash join to join us there. We're gonna bring back Ida and Brooke. We're gonna talk about a really interesting regulation passed in New York where you are not allowed to discriminate based on someone's hair. We'll come back and do that.